Listener Production. Rosie Batty's name has become synonymous with courage and resilience. Rosie has endured pain no person should ever have to suffer. Her son Luke was killed by his father in a violent incident in February 2014, a horrendous event that shocked not only the nation but the world. Only hours after her son's life was tragically taken, Rosie gave voice to many thousands of victims of domestic violence who had until then remained unheard. Rosie says, I am on a path to expose family violence and to ensure that victims receive the respect, support and safety they deserve. In this heartfelt conversation, Rosie and I discuss the power of a mother's love, the loss of her beautiful boy Luke and why even in her darkest hour, she will not hate. I don't hate people. I don't really dislike people. I just think they're emotions that you just, you might have fleeting, but don't hold on to things like that because they just don't serve you. You know, I want so much more from my life while I'm here. I want to contribute so much more in my life while I'm here. I want to be one of the people that leaves the planet doing the best I can for it. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. In 2015, Rosie Batty was named Australian of the Year and Fortune magazine named Rosie as one of its top 50 world's greatest leaders. She is also the best-selling author of the book A Mother's Story. Rosie's incredible strength and selfless efforts are an inspiration to many people. In this episode, you will learn the true meaning of resilience, courage and faith. Rosie, you were born in England and raised on a farm with your two brothers. Can you take us through the younger years? So, yeah, I was um, in a, brought up in a little village called Laneham, which, um, you know, is really based around agriculture back then. And we had a mixed farm with sheep, cows, um, dairy cattle. And when I was six and my younger brothers were four and two, well, not even two years old, uh, my mother died and it was very sudden. Um, it was something she shouldn't really have died from. Um, and our world really changed very quickly overnight. And so my dad was left with, you know, three small children under the age of seven. And um, so, you know, we had a lot of kind of, I guess, freedom. So we would... We would um, play around the farm and if I consider now you know after having my own child what we were able to do was highly dangerous very risky and we were very lucky to make it into adulthood <laughs> um in fact I could, I do remember starting school at five and learning when I got home that um, the fire engines had been called because my brother had started a fire, a bonfire beside the straw stack and, of course, the whole thing went up. Oh, God. Um, all because he had a box of matches and thought it was going to be intriguing to play with his friend by making a fire. But, you know, I, I remember, being, um, you know, from that, there was a very much a very village community um, 
tight community. In fact, if you came to the village and were not born there, you were treated as an outsider. And, um, and you know, it's very difficult for new people to be welcomed into the village, really, and be accepted. And I guess there were some key people on, as a village um, that um, I felt, helped step in when my mum died and looked mm. out for us especially. And my grandparents also lived across the road and, and they were there too. Um, and I think often, you know, where I'm, I, I've been living in Australia now for over 30 years and I identify really strongly with the Aboriginal culture of that connection to country and their sense of community and how they all help raise children. It's not just a parental mm. responsibility. And I think that, that, you know, I've still got that strong connection back in England. I, I have always gone back regularly and I found it incredibly difficult to accept when my father decided to retire fully um, in his 70s um, and sell the farm, um, which I had anticipated would be passed on through to my brother who had worked on the farm since leaving school. And um, it was my connection to, I guess, my childhood, my memories of my mum. And I used to always love going back and just walking around the farm and just being home and to think that somebody else lives there now and is making it their home was, was really difficult for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've always been that country girl. And so living in Australia, I now have a property and have lived here for nearly 15 years that has got um, paddocks with donkeys and half blind mm -hmm. off the track thoroughbred horse that will never make this you know never make the races um I've got dogs um animals have always been an important part of my life and I, I'm, I've no doubt that that's as a result of losing my mum at such a young age where I've kind of really looked to animals as as um trusted trusted loyal companions that never disappoint you never let you down um and um, and never leave you, and so except of course their lifespan isn't as long as as human lifespan. So there is always pain in in that loss. How did your dad? I mean, having that big job of raising three kids, you know, mm. who was so young. How did he equip you to mourn for your mother? Well, that's a really good question, Sarah, because I think, to be frank, he didn't have the skills. Mm. A man of his generation did not have really a, a huge involvement. It was not common for men to have a lot to do with their kids. He was the provider in that patriarchal kind of model of society that we kind of have come from. Um, so he was a farmer, you know. He, he had never changed our nappies. He'd never done things with us mm. um, it didn't mean he didn't love us it didn't mean that he didn't care but he wasn't equipped and he didn't know how to emotionally support us and I have to say that that emotional neglect is not something I blame him for but it's something that is is still something I struggle with even as a as an adult that's nearly 60 mm. you know that child that didn't get that emotional support at the time of my mother's death has impacted all of us, all my myself and my two siblings for the remainder of our lives. And so, you know, what he was able to do is we we had, you know, housekeepers. 
um, that helped. Um, we had, you know, my grandmother and my grandfather, who are my mother's parents and my aunties and uncles on that side, played a key role. We'd go there for school holidays. I loved being with my grandparents. I loved it. And they were my link to my mum. My father never mentioned my mum again. There were no photos. Mm. There was no talk. Mm. We were just three little kids that lost our mum. And we didn't know how it had happened. He didn't know have the words to tell us how it had happened. Mm. We didn't go to the funeral. We were the, he, he, he delayed telling us. And I guess that was quite common back then where you look to protect children. But really what you do is by not um, sharing and supporting that grief, you teach children to suppress it and they can't, don't have the, the skills and the, and the, and the ability to, uh, to be able to know how to safely feel sad um, and pain and loss. And so I think that, um, you know, yeah, he, 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 but he's a stoic man. And if I've gained a lot from him, it would be stoicism and strength and resilience. Um, he's a generous man. He's a kind man. I love him so much. But, you know, he hasn't been able to give me, but he's done the best he can. And so that's what you accept as you mature and then you become a parent and you're less than perfect yourself. And what you try each time you have children or families to give them perhaps what you didn't have, to be that a, a parent that you wished they were able to have been for you. And you still fail because you're still not perfect, but you can only try to do your best. When you were in your adult years, Rosie, did you ever talk to him about that? It's so funny, isn't it, in that we can talk to neighbours, mm. we can talk to friends, we can talk to our friends' parents, we can talk to anybody, but those deep confronting conversations, I, I don't know that it's very hard to have with those, with people that you've never really had them with. Yes. And honestly, when Luke got killed, um, they came over as, of course, they would. My whole family were here um, to support me in the best way that they could. But there were some very, um, a lot of conversations that happened around me um, amongst my family that my dad had never shared. My brother was 45 at the time and he had never been told how my mother had died. And my father was sharing this, not with us necessarily, but with other people. Mm. And, and my brother heard, you know. And so I think that we kind of accept, I, I, you know, I've accepted things about my dad and he has got better yes. at being able to talk, but I don't even demand that of him anymore, you know. There's sometimes you don't need to no. un unpack and go there because it's okay now. And, 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 and you know, he's, he's 88 in a month. And um, he's done the best he can in his life. Yes. And he's provided for me in ways that I'm incredibly fortunate, you know, benefit from for the rest of my life and gives me a financial security I never would otherwise have. When did you start a relationship with Greg Anderson? Oh, look, I, it was around my 30th birthday, actually. Um, I was... Um, um, working for a recruitment company at the time and he was one of those people that um, I met at work 
and um, kind of was quite drawn to him um, because he was, you know, a man in a suit and I, I, I think I just wanted to explore a different type of relationship with something a bit different and um, so, yeah, that's how I met him. How was your relationship with Greg in the early years? Look, looking back, all the red flags, everything, I should have, you know, it's, it's a typical story of somebody like myself being too nice, too forgiving, too accommodating, too understanding. Um, really, every, there were classic examples where he his work performance was um questionable, very questionable. He got the sack. He would be inappropriate with some of my friends and I couldn't quite, you know, they would say to me, he's made a pass at me and I would be confused and not sure. We didn't, weren't really in a, as a couple, we were mm. never a, a couple. Um, although at some point it kind of, you know, I now understand and I think more people are beginning to understand coercive control and deliberate mind games and deliberately being drawn into somebody's life, you know, back then I was naive, completely naive. I'd had loving relationships. They may not have worked out, but I was adored by my partners and they didn't work out and for varying reasons they didn't. Um, but I'd never met somebody who was deliberately cruel or deliberately um, controlling or, and I didn't understand that what I was experiencing really um, and really that that had a protracted span of about two years on and off in and out not seeing him all the time just and I was also at a really vulnerable point because I'd I'd actually bought a house and I felt really overwhelmed I the house was really barely a shack, to be frank. It was all I could afford at the time and it was really way out in the Dandenongs and I felt so alone, so isolated, so overwhelmed with about the financial commitment I'd made. And again, you know, when you, you, your self-worth and you're, you know, you're not in the, a good space, you're so susceptible to relationships that you really should just not ever engage with and and I, I guess that was the, the the place I was at and as I recovered my self-esteem for very um and as I rebuilt um uh, you know um yeah just I I lost interest in him and wanted him out of my life and I finally said if you don't go I'll call I, I will call the police and I never saw him again for seven years never heard from him again it was, he was gone and it was kind of astonishing really that through a, a friend that had known him um, and introduced us kind of, um, she bumped into him at, an, at something in the city and she said to me, guess who I bumped into in Melbourne? And I said, Greg Anderson. I do not know why I would have said that. I do not know what made me think of him after seven years. And um, I should have potentially just never met with him, but I was intrigued. And then very quickly I was drawn back into the same type of relationship with him, quite frankly, very quickly, very quickly. Um, again, I can look back now with wisdom, insight, healthier self-esteem, and say, 
all of this gaslighting, all of this control, everything he did. And it took me going to a counsellor at a point where I was extremely confused, unhappy, for them to ask me, are you experiencing violence? And I said, well, I don't know. And they handed me a sheet of paper with all of the descriptions of violence. And I looked and thought, oh, my gosh, I am. And yet the only violence I had to experience was physical. And when I say physical, it hadn't beaten me. But his physical intimidation by smashing walls above that were around my head, by, um, you know, other things, you know. So I, I was so naive. I didn't understand the different forms of violence. I blamed myself. I thought it was because I'd provoked him or I was the, na- you know, all the classic things where you, you realise that, again, he came back into my life at a very similar point. I bought a house in Menzies Creek in the Dandenongs. I was very isolated. I felt very alone. I wasn't happy at the time and I was just thrilled to have an old connection come back with no intentions of having a long-term relationship with him and yet somehow I got swept back into this thing we had, you know, which was some was an attraction. Um, we did share a humour. He could be a funny man. There was things about him I liked. I found him attractive, you know, in his own quirky way. Um, and I like that familiarity, you know, and um, never intended to fall pregnant. That wasn't, you know, I got, I was 40. Um, I hadn't deliberately not had children, but I think, again, because of I feared loss, I was frightened to love something that could be taken from me because that was my experience as a little girl from losing my mum. And I, you know, and I realised that um, I, I, you know, had that children had not entered into my life. A permanent loving relationship had not been part of my life. And, um, yeah, I guess and that, and so I fell pregnant quite quickly with Luke. And again, typically like a lot of relationships, um, that violence escalates and the control and all of the things they do. Um, so, yeah, that, that began a journey then where I was locked into an ongoing connection with him because I had a child with him. How did you feel the day that you found out you were pregnant with Luke? Uh, very confused, very confused. A sense of dread that it was with him because I'd already begun to realise that this was not going to be a relationship that was going to be a healthy, ongoing relationship that I would want for, for a child. Um, I felt trapped, but I knew that an abortion wasn't the answer and I wouldn't even entertain that thought. So I knew I had to sit with that. And I remember my friend's son, uh, this friend, a friend who I kind of went to to say, oh, my God, I'm pregnant, you know, Um, and her son, who's a lovely guy and a very insightful guy, said, what was, you know, as I was unravelling all of these fears and, you know, um, he said, what was your first thought when you got the result from your pregnancy test? 
And I said, well, actually, I think I would have been disappointed if it wasn't positive. Mm. And that then helped me understand that I did want this child. I did want this baby. In fact, I really, really wanted it. Take us through your relationship with Luke because you were a single mum. So I would assume that the two of you were pretty close. With Luke, um, you know, was I the best parent? I was an incredibly loving parent. I considered his needs, I would say, all the time. But I found it difficult to be the parent with firm boundaries, Mm. the firm parent, and um, because it was so much more easier for me to to love him. And so I think that um, I have no doubt, and I was thinking today as I was taking my dogs for a walk, the schools, the schools um, are within walking distance of where Luke went to school. And, you know, you kind of avoid that time because, one, it's a bit of a traffic build-up, yeah. but also, you know, it brings back memories of, of Luke and I... I, I you know, remember him, I'd come back to pick him up or to drop him off and um, sometimes I'd, you know, as he got older, he had to walk himself and he wouldn't like that sometimes and, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd see him and he would have a he'd be very sulky and make me feel guilty because I hadn't picked him up and I'd be thinking, nah, it's all good, it's all part of being that little bit of independence and having to... Um, yeah, do things, you know, um, so I think I'm, I know that he knew how much I loved him. There is no doubt about that. Um, and some of the things, you know, I've kept, of course, all his little notes he would write to me. Um, and, you know, and I, over the last, you know, period of time while I've been here, I've, I've, sometimes it's too painful to go through lots of photos and um, I'm familiar with the photos I have of him around my house, but I, I struggle to look for lots that I haven't, that I've got on my computer or I've got in places that I still have yet to, to look through. And, um, so I've braved that a little bit over the last, you know, few months and um, got the notes he wrote to me, little pictures he'd draw um, for me. And, you know, one of the things I do remember him saying is, my friends like you, mum, you're one of the cool mums. You know, and I, I thought I, that's what I wanted to be. I love children and I loved, he was a single kid and he was a social kid and you are quite isolated as a single mum. You're not always included in couples and families getting together, um, you, you know, and he felt that and, and I felt sad that I hadn't been able to give him siblings and I and that was a disappointment to him actually. He really desperately wanted a younger brother or sister mm. um, and I felt disappointed that I wasn't able to provide him a family. Um, I could only be the, you know, I gave him what I could but I was always that single parent and... Um, 
you know, and, and I understood the importance of him feeling connected to this area. Everything we did was within 10 minutes, 15 minutes away, you know, whether it was Cubs and Scouts, learning to swim, playing cricket and football. I wanted to replicate for him what I'd grown up with in mm. England and feeling that sense of community and connection. And, you know, he, we, he loved school. He loved his friends at school. Um, and, you know, and I think I, I really had done my very best to give mm. him a really strong start and really great foundations to be a, a, a lovely man. And I think that, you know, the, the gratifying thing for me, if there is anything, is that some weeks and, and, and you know, before he got killed, a few of my friends had you know, seeing him at different places, either selling raffle tickets for scouts or doing something, they said, oh, you know what, Luke was lovely. He's so mature. He's, you know, said, how are you? And, you know, he was chatting away as if he was, you know, and I thought I, that's what I wanted mm. him to be able to be, you know. It was a hot summer's afternoon in February 2014 in the Victorian township of Tyab. Rosie Batty's 11-year-old son, Luke Batty, had just finished cricket practice. Greg Anderson, his father, came towards him with a big smile. He seemed in good spirits and at that time was only allowed to see Luke whilst in the presence of others. When Luke asked his mum, Rosie, if he could have a few extra minutes of play at the nets with his dad because they were having so much fun, she was glad to give permission and off he ran. Without warning, Anderson swung the bat and dealt the child a colossal blow to the back of his head, then crouched over him where he lay and attacked him with a knife. The police shot Anderson and he died in hospital the following morning. How... Did you find the strength after that, Rosie? Uh, Sarah, there's lots of things that come into play. Um, it's too much for you to really uh, uh, fully take in. You, your body is, you are in shock and it's... Um, the finality, the reality, it's too much. You actually cannot take it in. Um, so you, you're kind of, I can't even describe, you're kind of like in a conscious but not conscious. You, you've got, you're not aware of time. You may have the same conversations. You don't even know you've had them. You're just struggling to take it in. Um, and, um, you know, fortunately, you know, I had a lot of good friends and people from everywhere came to my home and that was me. I wanted that. I, I, I got, I loved seeing how much Luke's death had upset people, you know, how much, how many people knew him, how many people cared. Mm. Um, that's me needing people as opposed to wanting to do it alone. And so I think that, um, you know, from the beginning I got, I felt very supported uh, from people I hadn't expected or didn't really know that our friendship was, you know, it, it was that strong. So I just was, um, I was really, I loved the compassion and this, the human spirit and the, that, that was the best, that's the best thing in a tragedy that 
people are human and they care and they want to do whatever they can, whatever that looks like, to show that they care. And flowers and cards and letters and phone calls and people coming and everybody just, I got that sense of so many people cared and that, that kind of helped. Where strength comes from, all I could think is it's kind of like my body knew what to do because it had been there before. Mm. And it's like you go back to being that six-year-old little girl that lost her mum and you just have a familiarity of having to get on with your life in a way that you can't even fully comprehend. And so you just do, you just get on with your life the best way you can and you have... You know, and whether it's healthy or it's not healthy, we we do it the only way we can. And for me, um, I learned as a little girl at six to suppress my emotions. Now, I'm still discovering how to connect with my emotions, how to feel them but not feel they're going to destroy me. This is a this is a journey of life. Yes. You don't arrive at the answer. It's an ongoing it's like the layers of an onion. There's always more to go. And so I can remember meeting an inspiring woman called Julian Hicks, who is a victim of uh, mm. the tube bombings, both not expected to survive, both legs blown away. And she said it took her seven years before she basically fell in a heap. And I kept thinking, when am I going to fall in a heap? And But you have moments where your anger is just extreme or the emotion that you've been suppressing pops like a cork. And it could be something that someone has said or something that somebody's done or a loud noise, but the suppression of your emotion has to come out at some mm. point. And unfortunately, that's not nice for people who have not been doing anything that really justified that degree of emotional reaction. And this, then you're left with a lot of remorse and shame. And so, you know, that's a journey. So, mm. yes, it's strength potentially that gets you up and then you find yourself being able to shower and then you find yourself being able to eat something and then you find yourself actually being able to laugh. And, and this doesn't have, you know, this, these are moments where you go, I think, um, you know, you get snatches of time where you think, oh, so I can laugh. Oh, I can enjoy that food. I can, you know, so you start to realise mm. you are going to be able to enjoy elements of your life again. It is not always going to be this pain, this pain all of the time so now you have gaps you know and and there's a lot of people that talk about grief where it's like waves you know some at the beginning they're fast and furious it's like a storm but then they subside and every now and again you get a big wave that will just take you um, and other times they're just nice and gentle. And I think, um, you know, grief is an ongoing journey and it's really hard to consider for a minute and think, I'll never get rid of this. This is something that I, I will have for the rest of my life. It can be incredibly overwhelming and it's easy to feel I don't want to keep feeling this. And I didn't realise because it never occurred to me that there would there are people that obviously would have been concerned 
about me taking my own life. Um, but actually it was three years later. It was after Luke had been gone for three years because, you see, eventually people have all gone. Their lives have moved on. Mm. And then you're angry because they've still got children. Their children are growing up. You know, they're doing things that you you will never get to share and you, you deeply resent, even though you know it's not reasonable, that you can't ever have that. You can't ever have that. You've lost that, that they are going to have. And so I think you battle so many conflicting emotions that you feel are not, you know, that are not reasonable or you, you feel shame because you think them, but it's, it's, it's ultimately all part of a natural journey of recovery, really. But it takes, it's not easy for people supporting you and they have to have great emotional intelligence and, you know, and, and, and my lifetime friends, of course, have been able to go the journey. Mm. My parents and my family have no choice. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. it's the ones closest <laughs> to you often are the ones that, you know, see you at your worst or experience the worst, you know, and things like that. So I think that, um, you know, journey is not easy. And so when people see you reflecting strength, that's when they've seen you at that time when you are strong, you know. And so there are many private moments, times when you feel very alone, that the world has forgotten you and you don't have a place in it. And where are those connections that you had that were all around you when Luke got killed? Well, you know, the truth of the matter is no one can fill that gap. That gap is for yours to try to work out how to fill. And it comes from within. Yeah. And again, it's a, it's a journey. It's a journey of um, that you, we all have un, that's unique to ourselves. And so I'm, I feel fortunate and thankful that over 20 or 30 years, I've had an interest in spirituality. I don't belong to a religion. I don't call it religious. It's my own spiritual pathway where I'm still exploring and still trying to, you know, understand and work things out. And I, I have, will always have that inquiring mind, that curiosity. Do you believe in God or a higher source, Rosie? I, I, I can more comfortably call this spirit or whatever it is that I feel I could call it God but not in the religious construct that man has created. And so I'm, that's where I continue to inquire. I continue to change what I'm thinking. But, and I, I feel quite a novice, you know. However, I've, I tune into either through books, either through um, um, different mediums of people who are deeply spiritual or very, um, I find it incredibly interesting and also, obviously, I gain a lot of insight and wisdom that applies to me too. But I, I'm very clear that we are energy. Yes. And I'm very clear that our frequency of energy um, attracts like. And so I, I, that's where I'm at. I feel that we are energy and I'm not clear on what happens when we die, but I feel that we go into, um, we don't end. Yes. But what saddens me, of course, is the realisation of the finality that I will never embrace Luke in the form or in the way that I had him. And 
And that is difficult sometimes because, of course, what you want is to wake up from a bad dream that actually the dream that you're having, because it's often in my dreams, you wake up and the reality is that, you know, that I can't touch him, I can't talk to him. And, you know, over the last six months, I've, like a lot of people, I had to live alone with my memories. And, and, and you know, you, you, you would love to be able to just somehow work hard enough to change it and you just can't. And I think I woke up to that realisation some years ago. I was pouring myself into all the campaigning and advocating that I could, which I'm so glad I did because I do think it made some difference. But, and it gave me purpose and it gave me meaning. And that's how I got through because I felt I was part mm. of something and I had amazing and inspiring committed people around me who've been working within this area of family violence for decades and throughout their whole careers. Uh, and to feel a sense of belonging to, to, to those, with those people and a sense of purpose absolutely gave me the reason to live. Do you talk to him now? Do you know what, Sarah? That, yes, I do. Um, and I've been able to do that more so, I guess, because I'm alone. Yeah. And I've realised how comforting it is to just, you know, instead of thinking it in my head, to actually say it mm. as if he's there. And I, I, yeah, and maybe I would be a bit embarrassed to admit that typically, but I don't know why. But yeah, I, I, I have, I have, I was saying that this morning because I went to walk the dogs and sometimes I take them down to the Tyre Oval, which is where he got killed. And they've created a beautiful memorial garden. And right now, and his favourite colour was yellow. So they have a lot of yellow flowers there that, of course, come into flower at different times. So right now there's a beautiful tree in the centre that is full of yellow blossom. And there is a plaque there and it says, Luke Batty, um, loved and adored by his mum, Rosie. And, you know, so I loved going there and a lot of people do and having a place where you can go and talk to him. Not that I, I mean, I do that at home as well, but um, it kind of gives you a permission almost to. So I, I, um, I, I get a little comfort from that nice, yeah. nice space that was created by community that, of people that wanted again to, to contribute and do something. What do you talk to him about? Oh, gosh, anything really, I suppose. But often, you know, whether I'm walking the dogs and, you know, my dog, Zach, is 11 now. He's as old as Luke have, was, you know. It's hard when you see your pets become older than your own child ever got to. And the connection he had with with Zach was one of his dogs and his cats. And you realise that when they pass on, that connection with Luke is then gone. And he, I already lost his um, golden retriever, Lily, that was his dog. Um, so, yeah, I talked to him about it, lots of things. You know, sometimes they're just funny sharings um, and um, 
just what, what was top of mind at the time, I think. And, and this morning, as I was dri driving down there, I realised it was at the same time as schools were turning in. And, and I, you know, I was saying, I remember we'd be driving along and I remember vividly, you know, what I see more vividly of you is you in your black shorts with your yellow sports top, your white socks, um, and just walking on the side of the road and looking around at me and pretending to be cool. You know, I had to be cool. So it's not cool to look too joyous because your mum's there, you know. It's much more. So we'd have that kind of game where he'd, you know, kind of be cool and but was really pleased to see me. Is it hard living in the same house that you brought Luke up in? I think it's hard. And then you realise, I, I realised not to move too early because I thought you may regret that to just stay with it. So I'm, it's not hard now at all. I think what will be hard is actually leaving it. Yeah. I think because, you know, the, I've now been here nearly 15 years and I was, you know, nearly seven years, it'll soon be seven years since he was gone. So I don't look at the across the pool anymore and just feel pain I can look at the pool and see the pool and not see and not have the pain of Luke will never be in the pool I, I can look around my property and be in it and, you know and I, I sleep in his bedroom and I've I've turned it into a bedroom that it suits me yes. with my furniture but there's a wall um, it's like an Ikea bookshelf and it's got all his favourite things in it mm. and they, they, they are just there. They're just there. Sometimes I really look at them and pick something out of that and look at it and I kept lots of his favourite things or some things that had meaning for, that we both shared and, you know, and that gives me comfort and familiarity and a sense of him being around, I suppose. When you have had dreams about Luke, what are they about? Oh, a lot of the time that he's here, that it's, that actually I can't, I don't want to say anything because if I say it, it might disappear. So it's like he's just normal and I can see him as normal and he's just doing, he's just being Luke. Um, and then I think, hang on. You know, so that sometimes you don't remember a lot of the dreams, but that would be quite familiar to me that he's he's just in them. And then when I think, well, actually, didn't he die or something like this? It's like, no, 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 he's so, yeah, it's, it's hard to, to say really, but that's one of them that where he figures in my dreams and he's there and he's real. But obviously when you wake up, it's, he's not. Do you hate Greg Anderson for what he did? No, I, I think I don't hate people. I don't really mm. dislike people. I just think there are emotions that you just, you might have fleeting, fleeting, but don't hold on to things like mm. that because they just don't serve you. I don't want to become an angry and bitter person. I have, an ang I have the propensity to, to have angry outbursts. Um, but I don't want, so I, I don't think of him in that way. I don't condone what he did, of course. And I, I just say sometimes, how the hell 
could he have done that to hurt me so much? How the hell could he have ever done that? And I literally don't think of him much at all. I feel sorry for his family. Um, I, I just, it doesn't, you know, do I forgive? I don't know. I think forgiveness, it's very important to forgive. But forgiving isn't condoning or mm. excusing or making, you know, forgiving, I think, is letting go, mm. letting go of it. Self-liberation. And, and, and continue to move on in your life. You know, what a miserable ending to a life to find, to, to, to do that, to end in that, up in that space. You know, I want so much more from my life while I'm here. I want to contribute so much more in my life while I'm here. I want to be one of the people that leaves the planet doing the best I can for it. You know, I always want to be a better person. I don't always meet my own expectations. Mm. But that's that's what I choose. That's what I choose. And it doesn't, you know, so I don't choose to hate Greg. I don't choose to linger on thoughts lengthy thoughts about him. I often have memories where I sometimes, you know, think, and, and I don't, you know, I have a, a dish that he gave me. Now, I didn't smash it, didn't throw it away. I, I have it there uh, because it was a nice thing he gave me and it was a time when he gave it me, he meant it. And so, you know, I, I, yeah, I just... It's, it's difficult and I think it's difficult for people to understand uh, because I think they expect you to really hate and really be angry and and I came out that day after Luke died and I didn't speak like that and I, because I didn't feel like even then. It's like I just don't want to be dragged into yes. those kind of feelings that don't, don't serve, serve you. How has being of service changed your life? I don't know whether I've ever described it as being in service, but I guess I have been. Um, I, I think it just it gives you a sense of purpose and meaning. Mm. You know, when you do, when you, you know, you don't always, I wish I could do so much more. You know, I, I embrace and appreciate the positive things people tell me and I find that it helps reassure me because you realise how much more needs to be done how far away we are from equality and stopping violence towards women and children. But it does give me a sense of, um, yeah, purpose. Mm. And I honestly think that when we don't have that, we flounder and we struggle and we look to substitute that in our healthy ways. Um, so that's, you know, and I and look during this extended time of social isolation, I floundered on on what my purpose and meaning is. And I've when I've realised I'm floundering, I've realised that's exactly what's happening at the root of these things. And so again, it's about reevaluating, reassessing, sitting with your feelings, and knowing that they're not going to kill you, but they are very uncomfortable. And what is that telling me? What is it? What am I learning? And what have I got to change? And or what have I got to um, shift? And and I think that that's really what. That this journey called life is. Do you think time heals all wounds? 
I th look, I used to find it very difficult when people would say this to me that, you know, time doesn't heal and, um, you know, what else would they say? Um, um, you, you never heal, you just learn to live with it. And I think, oh, my God, I just, I can't live with this pain. This is just too much. So what I would say is time does help. Um, you don't think you're ever going to ever feel different, but you do, you do. But I think it's, it's you know, that's my journey. That's for me. And I energetically, I guess, it's within me to seek, to survive, to move forward, to get to the other side. And not everybody has that desire or strength or, you know, but I think we have amazing strength to draw from. But, you know, I've had that model to me as a kid through people who have had a huge influence in my life that I've loved deeply from my grandmother, my father, my aunties, my uncles, people that I know, they've had a huge influence on me as I look back and reflect at who I am now. How do you feel now, Rosie? This moment? That time. Um, again, Sarah, it's really interesting because it's almost like you had a drone following me on my walk this morning as I was talking to Luke and, and things because I've realised through some work I'm doing with my counsel, my therapist, um, you know, the real gap I have with this um, emotional um, disconnect from childhood and it's really hard for me to have words or recognise feelings. I think a lot. I can explain things away with words. I can intuit. I'm very intuitive. I can, uh, I could, you know, be very intuitive about other people's feelings and, and, and anticipate what they would be feeling and I'm pretty good at that. But how I feel it's like I haven't got the words for it, I haven't got the language for it, and I don't necessarily recognise how I'm feeling. I know when I feel anger, I know when I feel really sad, but it's kind of like, what? How do, how do I know what I feel right now? And I did this this morning because there are some exercises from a book that I'm currently been reading. Um, on emotional, childhood emotional neglect. And um, yeah, it's about what are you feeling? And I think today I have felt optimistic. If you'd have asked me that two weeks ago, I would have said sad. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. So today I feel optimistic, optimistic that... Um, I have things to look forward to and plan towards and I've put those wheels in motion. I've found my, I'm finding my purpose and my meaning again because it floundered for a while. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? If you want to be it, act it. Yeah, I love that. And so I guess the relevance for me, Sarah, is when I think about that more meaningfully is I've always struggled with enormous self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And that was crippling for me whilst I was Australian of the Year and since because I don't feel good enough. I don't feel that I'm worthy enough. 
I feel I haven't done enough. And it is unrelenting. And so having extended times alone, like I have, that negative self-talk can just, just drive you to a very negative place, you know. So that if you want to be adapted, I guess resonates with me because I've always felt I'm the little the little country girl that got, got landed into a big cosmopolitan city and I was I, I was nervous and didn't feel I fitted into the you know the corporate power dressing environments that I found myself in and then I didn't feel like I fitted into those cosmopolitan restaurants and and boutiques and and, and think, and as of course, you know, and then the other saying that has resonated is if feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm. That's what brought me to Australia. I was so fearful. I was so fearful I couldn't even ask a bus driver to which the directions. So I sat on a bus going in the wrong way. Um, that's when I first arrived to Australia. So, you know, the feel the fear, do it anyway. You, you extend yourself and then that becomes comfortable. Then that becomes normal. And then it becomes... Just what you do. What is a life of greatness to you? I think it's 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 being authentic. It's being the best of who you can be. You know, not sinking to lower that lower standard because you dealt something. You know, it's it's try. It's just being great is just by trying to be the best you can be at any particular moment and sometimes that's bloody hard but you know that's all I try to be. Rosie Batty you are an amazing courageous fabulous woman who's done so much in Australia for campaigning against domestic violence thank you so much. Sarah, thank you for the opportunity to have such a rich and deep conversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolich and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.